This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone. This is Chelsea Gibson, a host on New Books in Russian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, we are talking with Alison Rowley. She is a professor of history at Concordia University in Quebec, and she has a new book out called Putin Kitsch in America, which was published this year by McGill Queens uh, University Press. Welcome to the podcast, Alison. Thank you very much, Chelsea. I'm delighted to be here. I am very excited for our conversation. I think it will be very interesting to everybody out there listening uh, today. So what I wanted you to do is maybe start um, start us off maybe with kind of a how you would describe your book and maybe how you came to this particular project. Okay, I'm going to flip the order of those questions. Please do. Um, I never intended to work on Putin. Mm. And Chelsea and I were talking privately before the interview, and I, I said to her, which is something that's very true, I've always been very comfortable working with dead people. <laughs> it's easier to work with dead people. You have no copyright problems. For most of my career, I've worked on cultural and material history. And so I've built my own archives, and that's what I mean about copyright. Mm -hmm. Well, in, oh, early 2016, maybe the end of 2015, a friend emailed me and said, I'm pulling together this conference to celebrate the 1917 revolutions. And I want to fly you out to my university, which was in a lovely destination. Um, can you do something on material culture? And I said, yeah, sure, no problem. And she said, how about leadership cults? Could you compare, you know, what what changed over 100 years? And I pondered for a second and said, well, okay, I've worked on Lenin's cult before mm -hmm. and, and some of the manifestations with that. And I said, oh, and I've got 18 months. I can, I can get used to this Putin stuff. I had no idea. It was like falling down a rabbit hole in Alice in Wonderland. I happened to start doing this right at the moment where Donald Trump began to say very warm things about Putin while he was campaigning for president. And so I just sort of hit this treasure trove of memorabilia and it all was connecting Putin to the American election. So I thought I would produce a paper for that conference, maybe make it into the conference volume. Then as I got into the materials, realized some of them were very, very sexualized. And so I started to produce a companion piece, which looked at those sexualized narratives. Um, that article actually came out before the book did. And I thought once I had the conference paper in this article, I was done. I happily went off to the conference. And while I was there, a publisher emailed me and said, I've heard you're working on something. Would you talk to me at the next ACES conference? And I thought, eh, I don't know. Um, and I pondered it all day long. And then finally, a friend said to me, she goes, just take the meeting. What do you lose? And I thought, OK, I'll take the meeting. So I, I drafted on my way to the, the airport, on the, on the airport shuttle from this conference, I took out a big yellow post-it note and started drafting. If I was going to turn this into a book, how, what would the structure look like? By the time I was on the airplane, I had the book outline, and I knew no matter what they said in that meeting, I was writing this book. Mm. Um, so that was the genesis of it. I didn't realize at the time when I had planned the original outline that it would go in some of the directions that it did. Um, so I think that the focus sometimes on participatory culture, something I'm sure we're going to talk about in a few more minutes, that was really new because it meant immersing myself in a literature I hadn't looked at before. And I wasn't sure to the extent to which I was going to be getting involved in digital culture and some of the things about video gaming and, and things like that. That wasn't what I sort of thought of when I first imagined the book. Um, but then over time, as I started to work on it, I realized there was the other components and it would be incomplete without them. So now the book that's out is really a study of how Putin has become part of American political culture from about the year 2006 all the way through 
well, certainly tr- the election of Donald Trump as president, and then a little bit after. So just probably just past his inauguration. So one of the things maybe we could start with is how how would you describe kind of Putin's cult in Russia? In some ways, it's similar, um, but he has more control over it in Russia. Mm. And so the signals are much clearer. So he has, you know, people in the Kremlin who release things and they have spokespeople who say things. And and I think he's very actively involved in staging some of those media stunts that we see, you know, where Putin flies with the cranes or Putin rescues tigers. Um, I think he is really involved in in planning those, or at least he acquiesces to them. And he's aware of the way the media handles his appearances. I think he's he's aware of, of his own image. What's interesting about contexts outside of Russia is that the authorities have no control over them. And that's really different than other, say, Soviet leader cults, um, where, again, there was heavy state control over the dissemination of material with these images. Um, What happens in North America is it becomes playful and people can do whatever they want with them. So I think in some ways, North Americans are really responding to what they see in Russia. But at the same time, they don't have a deep knowledge about Russian events. So in some of the fan fiction, for instance, they get the backstory of Putin's life all wrong. And that doesn't matter because what matters is the stereotype they've built up and how they want to use that. No one really cares. Is he married? Is he not married? Um, You know, did he graduate from college in this year or that year? That's irrelevant to what they're trying to do. Instead, it becomes a question of, we're familiar with this image of him that's been created, and we're going to employ it to critique our own politicians. Yeah. And I think you make a great point in the book, too, of saying the Cold War legacy kind of set up a stage for Putin to kind of become this image in the United States. Oh, he's such the perfect boogeyman. Yes. And I was surprised when I started to sort of dig in the older variants of this, the competition between Khrushchev and Kennedy, for instance, Mm -hmm. where Kennedy had to present a kind of certain kind of masculinity in order um, to really be an effective politician. And what was at odds was, of course, his actual physical health meant his bad back. He couldn't play those games. I mean, he was so on drugs and and painkillers and and those football games on the White House lawn. That's not real. Um, But it was the perception that mattered. And it mattered because if you showed weakness, then the Soviets thought you were weak. And so for decades, there was this sort of intertwining of the relationship with with the American and Soviet leaders. And I think that that is an important legacy because especially when we think of the 1990s, when people often say to me, why is Putin popular? I don't think we can understand why Putin is popular, even today in Russia, unless we understand how bad life was in the 1990s. I agree so much. And, you know, Yeltsin looked very much like he was always beholden to the Americans. So now when you have a leader who comes in and, and with that swagger and the sort of Tony Soprano language, it resonates really well because Russians remember both the economic hardship, but also feeling inferior to other nations in the 1990s, like they had lost their great power status. And so what Putin did around 2006, when he changed his image, it really resonated with people. It was a return to this sort of, no, um, we are just as strong as you are. And that's going to be expressed in a very masculinized discourse. So one of the things I think is really important maybe to start with as we're kind of trying to explain how this Putin catch came uh, and became such an influence in American culture, material culture, is like, what are the ingredients that you need to get Putin catch? Like, what are the ingredients that you need kind of culturally, politically to get a coloring book about Putin? What a great question. And really at the heart of certainly the first half of the book, um, which actually doesn't open with kitsch. It opens with a story about American media landscapes. You need a couple of things. You need a new kind of media that's very focused on the personal lives of political leaders and for that to be considered news. So the first changes came sort of mid-1980s. There's a technological element, which is the invention of things like video cameras that you could hold and move with. Um, because that enabled reporters to literally chase down stories. They could run after people with a camera. And in the TV landscape, there was a lot more deregulation. So there was allowing um, different kinds of journalism on the air on top of the first cable news shows coming on. When Once you have CNN on the air and they're on 24 hours a day, they actually had to fill 24 hours a day. And so they, they began to sort of imagine what stories were in different ways. And that all came to a head. 
um, with the Gary Hart scandal, which I talk a lot about in this book. And because Gary Hart is like this sort of ground zero for a new kind of media, where before that, who cared what the president was doing? This wasn't reported. Why did Gary Hart just explode on the media landscape? And what it was, was this, this sort of confluence where people could follow him, they could chase after him. And the new spin was if you caught a president lying or a candidate for office lying, the lie was the story because it made them untrustworthy. And, and trustworthiness really mattered in the wake of the Nixon Watergate um, situation. So this new emphasis coming out in the 1980s of are politicians telling us the truth? What's going on in their personal lives? Are there any moments of hypocrisy? And that's part of the story, this the celebrification of our political leaders. The second thing that happens is the rise of print-on-demand services. And sort of in the mid-2000s, and ironically, it's for the um, Ron Paul campaign, you know, a campaign most people don't even remember heading into the 2008 political um, cycle. Ron Paul was running for president, and some of his followers decided to make T-shirts using one of these print-on-demand services. And even the, the campaign itself were like, what is this? We don't know what's happening. But since that time, it's really exploded. And now, anytime a political leader makes a misstatement or something quite surprising happens on a campaign trail, in less than 24 hours, new objects are there or memes that can be printed onto objects are posted. And Cafe Press is just one of a, a bunch of different sites. I mean, there are dozens of them. And some of them have, have you know, multinational, multinational, let me say that correctly, multinational reaches. So I bought some things, for instance, from a service that's based out of Australia, but has branches both in North America and in part of Europe. Um, so it's a very interesting sort of world where you can really express your political opinion almost instantaneously through this print-on-demand thing that didn't exist before. And now it does. And the final thing that we need to have Putin catch is a leader who's amenable to it. And in 2006, 2007, Putin reworked his own image. There's an interesting thing about timing here. Russia could behave far more aggressively on the international stage because they had paid off their foreign loans. They'd repaid the IMF. Um, the bank balance was looking better. Oil revenues were up. And the minute that happened, the Russians stopped being sort of compliant. And Putin instead came out and made some very strong public statements at home. Um, and they began to act much more belligerently on the international stage. That all came to a head on his vacation in August 20, 2007, when he went to Siberia and took his shirt off. And this was a real, real shocker because, you know, political leaders don't do this on, as a normal rule of thumb. We've have photos of various leaders without their shirts, but usually they're private photos. And if they're ever leaked to the public, there's an outcry that there's been invasion of privacy. The only thing that's comparable to this, this early Putin um, splash of publicity is Mussolini in the 1930s, who did a photo, a photo shoot out with the peasants bringing in crops and looking manly. Um, but when Putin allowed for those photos to come out, his entire persona changed. So what you had is, is right at about 2007, this interesting moment where the new media landscape caught up with new kinds of technologies in the digital world, caught up with a ruler who was prepared to come out and present himself like he's Sylvester Stallone. And those three things put together gave us the world we have now, which is where Putin can be used in any number of different ways. It seems that the heart of this book is an understanding that the nation is represented by a hard masculine body. Oh, yes. Like, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the kind of intersection of masculinity and power and foreign policy and relations. It's really interesting to see that because going into it, I wasn't sort of thinking in those directions at first. And then I sort of realized what they were doing. And, and it left me as well with, with deep concerns about what happens then as women try to run for office. Because if so much of the discourse about the American political landscape is tied in with the performance of masculinity, no matter what a woman does, she's at a disadvantage. And, and so that's one of the things that, that for the last two years, I, as I've finished the book and have watched it through publication, I've really pondered. And this next election cycle keeps me thinking about it as we have more female candidates, certainly running on the Democratic side for the nomination. Um, I'm not sure how we get around that. But what I came to be aware of was the way in which there was always this need to have a swagger and the way in which this was so artificial. 
you know, going back to Kennedy hiding his physical um, ailments from the public. But he's not the only one. You know, Ronald Reagan was a perfect example of this because you could tap his identity as the movie star. And they didn't tap, oh, he made movies with, with Bonzo the Chimp. That was the, the one they forgot. They, they really went back to the image of him on horseback in his westerns, that sort of frontier masculinity. And I think George Bush reinvented himself this way. Well, George Bush Jr. did. Um, I mean, if you think about it, George Bush Jr. grew up in Connecticut. He was not exactly a Texas frontiersman. But when he decided to run for office, he changed his residency to Crawford, Texas. Suddenly he becomes governor of Texas. And he reinvents himself as this cowboy the lone man taking on the wilderness and, and I have the strength to carry everyone. Um, and so you see this sometimes written about as either presidential masculinity or sometimes even frontier masculinity. There's an example in Canada where I teach our prime minister, Stephen Harper, not the current prime minister, because he doesn't do the same kinds of stunts, but our, our previous prime minister, Stephen Harper made it a point of always visiting at least once a year up in the Arctic areas to do things like ride manly snowmobiles um, and again, assert his dominance over the physical landscape. And they're all sort of playing this out that if you are um, an ideal man, then you're going to be an ideal leader. The idea that you're independent and rugged and not, you don't have to be beholden to anyone else. And somehow you've got control over everyone's territory and you're reliable. These are the sort of characteristics that are assumed you have. And they begin to then question other people's manliness. So you saw attacks, for instance, against John Kerry when he was running against um, George W. Bush. They attacked his war record. They attacked his hobbies and pastimes. More recently, um, there's a lot of right-wing criticism during the Obama years over Obama's hobbies when out of office. And there were a couple of memes, the, the dreadful episode, for instance, when Obama wore a light-colored suit. I mean, the right wing just went catastrophic. It was catastrophic. He was appearing in a light colored suit. And this just, you know, meant that everyone was laughing at America. Or the Martha's Vineyard moment when he's riding a bicycle, wearing a bike helmet. And because that was just seen as not very manly at all. Um, And so this performance is really at the root of American political culture, certainly from post-Second World War era. And, um, and I think it's playing out in other places. I mean, obviously it breaks down in certain places. Like it's hard to argue that's the case in Germany. Um, although you might make a case that Angela Merkel deliberately doesn't appear overly feminine on purpose and she never brings her husband anywhere. Um, but by and large, if you think of Silvio Berlusconi and, um, of course, Putin, the way that Erdogan of Turkey performs masculinity, even to some extent, Emmanuel Macron, who kind of vi- goes backwards and forwards on how he performs his duties, he's trying to present a particular kind of image. And this is at the root, I think, of contemporary politics. Yeah, because even if you have these politicians who are trying to deviate maybe from that frontier masculinity, they're nevertheless trying to establish a legitimate type of ruling masculinity. Yes. So it continues to hinge on that. Well, if you think of the emphasis every time there's a press conference on how aggressive was the handshake and how long did they hold on to each other and who initiated this? And did someone slap someone else on the back? And all of this has to do with those, those body language cues for which person in the meeting was the dominant figure. And, and you have pundit after pundit, you mean spending hours on this, but well, this one shook his hand, this, and it lasted, you know, two seconds longer than this handshake. And they, they attach really deep meaning to that, that somehow to be, important on the world stage, your country has to promote itself very aggressively. Yeah. And one of the things I think is most interesting about the book is you're looking at Putin right from 2007 kind of on. And so you have the Obama presidency and then you have the Trump presidency. And it seems like in the, during the Obama presidency, Putin is used as a cudgel to criticize Obama's masculinity Mm -hmm. by more of the right. But now the left seems to be using Putin to kind of make fun of Trump or to like, and, you know, tell people that Trump is not as masculine as he makes himself out to be. So there's still this like Putin is mm-hmm. the alpha male, no matter who's in charge, it's used as a cudgel on both sides. I'm glad you caught that. Because the very that that's an important thread, I think that runs through the book, but I'm not necessarily um, very 
in your face with that commentary. And it's interesting because the very first pieces of kitsch come about, I think, people on the left who are concerned about Sarah Palin possibly becoming vice president in, in the 2008 election. And when she doesn't, I mean, she and, she and McCain don't win the ticket, um, that vein dries up. And then you're right. The people producing this material shift. And so um, very, very much Putin materials become a product of the right to critique Obama. So I use an example in the book, but I don't reproduce it because the, the cartoon is copyrighted. But a conservative um, cartoonist named Dan Ura put out, for instance, just he has a number of these, but the one that always comes to mind is Putin and um, Barack Obama are both supposed to be holding the world up like Atlas, only the globe has actually crushed Obama. And it was a commentary on Obama's, um, inad- what he viewed as Obama's inadequate stance on Syria. And, and so he, he designed that completely in response to what he viewed as Obama failing in the political arena. And then there's this change again. Um, that vein dries up. And the minute we have this sort of warm, mutual admiration being expressed by Putin and Trump, the materials now are produced, I'm guessing, almost exclusively by people on the left. And, and I'm not sure where it's going to go. I mean, it depends on who wins again, because Putin certainly is going to be around till 2024. Um, not sure who's going to be in the White House in 2020, but if it is Donald Trump, then, then I'm assuming the criticism will continue to be from the left. But if it's not, we could see, again, another reversal where the right comes to say, oh, we need a more Putin-like aggressive ruler and we can't have someone else. And they will use him to critique whoever is there. I think the the next kind of necessary question is how you define kitsch. Because you have a lot of different examples in the book. You have like video games, you have fan fiction, you have gnomes and coloring books and yes. puppets. So what kind of, um, what brought you to this? How, how did you define kitsch and therefore kind of gather your sources? The easiest way to define it is, is if you look at it and you kind of groan and go, <laughs> oh, that's so awful, but oh my God, I have to have that. Um, so that's the reaction I always get whenever I hold up the Putin bathing suit. Everyone's like, oh, that's so awful. But then they're like, but where did you get that? You have to describe the bathing suit so that people. Oh, it's actually a a one. It's a one piece bathing suit and it's a close up of Putin's head. (laughs) And and so you can imagine that um, his eyes are roughly where a woman's breasts would be. And I'll leave the rest to everyone's imagination on the model on the website where it comes from. She is beautifully proportioned. So it looks normal. And part of the joke with all of that, I think, is if you put it on a regular person's body, of course, Putin's face is going to stretch like you're in a funhouse. And and so that's part of the joke. Um, defining kitsch is hard. I, I mean, I can fall back on a platitude and say it's kind of like porn. You know it when you see it. But there is a degree of truth to that. You need something that is just really tacky and awful. And yet at the same time is arresting, I think. And... I, my definition of it, it was easy for the material stuff is so easy for me to spot. And he, the fan fiction, I think my criteria was I was looking for the sarcasm and the, the reversals and the way in which they used humor. So the pieces of fan fiction that I think were the most effective were often the ones that used snippets from the actual election campaign or, for instance, made fun of aspects of their personas. So in the case of the Donald Trump characters, usually that would be orange spray tan, addiction to a phone, small hands, and the way that Donald Trump speaks. So there'd be a sort of blusteriness to the language. The Putin characters are almost universally not wearing a full outfit of clothing, Um, aggressive masculinity, aggressive speech. um, And again, things that are typically associated with Putin and his public appearances, but somehow taken to just a little bit too extreme, you know, a little bit more over the top than what you would normally see. The digital stuff, I started to think of it, I tried to compare it with the material and say, okay, well, what exists online and how awful is it? And if I could make that digital thing come alive, what would it look like? And then I could sort of see it as kitsch. So some of the games, which are just so incredibly awful um, in terms of the quality and not, not a lot of thought goes into them. And again, it just plays on all of the stereotypes. So that's what I was looking for. Really just things that are arrestingly awful would be how I would put it. Nobody is going to ever say these are works of art. Um, These are not like, 
wonderful oil paintings of Catherine the Great or Peter the Great from history. No one is going to want to frame this. Well, actually, I I stand corrected because at my house, we do have some of these things kind of lying around. And my husband's not always happy about that. But um, but it's and, and now the overflow is in my office at work where people can come in and kind of look at kish objects in front of my books. But it's not great art and it is going to disappear. That's the other thing with with a lot of kitsch. It disappears very quickly. So many of these things I used in the book no longer exist. The listings are gone. If you didn't buy the object within two or three weeks, it's now pulled. If it didn't sell enough or or it was just considered old or the designer doesn't want to sell it anymore. So there's a sort of temporariness to many of these things. They're not made out of very good quality materials. Um, The plastics are often awful. The t-shirts, depending on how you fold them, the design sometimes now, the well, the, the inks that were used to print the t-shirts, they can stick together. So it becomes interesting to store them so you don't ruin the design. And so that's how I see it. I really just use this sort of ick barometer. And and at times I, you just sort of knew. Like some of it is so breathtakingly awful, you just know that that cannot ever be considered high political commentary. One of the questions that I had too is... Um... I know that your previous projects dealt with material culture Mm -hmm. and you're already describing some of the challenges and limitations of dealing with this kind of ephemeral, poorly made, probably shipped from China type of ephemeral Mm -hmm. culture. So how did your previous work with material culture help you approach this project and build a database, build an archive? Mm -hmm. Like what are the ways that you used to use material culture and how did that help you with this project? It helped enormously with the first couple of chapters. So as I sat down to write this, I I mean, I'll admit this. I wrote the digital chapter last because I was less comfortable with that. And I knew I would have to do it, but I wasn't always sure how I wanted to go into that. The material culture stuff was easy for me. I knew where to look. And and that's one of those things. I was very fortunate is one way to think of it. Um, When I was working on my dissertation, and then eventually as I, I pulled articles out of my dissertation, my kids had just been born. And my kids are born 15 months apart. So it made it almost impossible to go and do extensive research in archives in Russia. So I'd already been kind of looking, how could I build my own archive? And and I was interested in all kinds of questions about pervasiveness of propaganda in the Soviet 1930s and all of these things. And it happened to be when eBay was young. I mean, eBay was so new. PayPal wasn't invented. We used to send money literally through the mail. Um, Russian sellers were not even on eBay yet because they were banned still, all of this stuff. So I started to just buy things. And so this, the Putin archive that I have now is really the third archive I've built for research purposes. Um, and I learned too, that especially for my work in the pre-revolutionary era, and then also in the 1930s, if I owned the original, I didn't have to ask anyone for reproductive Rights. Well, that's the wrong way of saying reproduct. Rights for reproduction uh, when we wanted to put it into any kind of publication. And it was just far easier if I, I bought things. And at the time, no one was on eBay. I mean, everything was really, 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 really cheap. And so when I started to, to think about material culture and what was going on in the Putin um, realm, I went to eBay first. And then I started, I worked outwards because I'd, I'd always used eBay. Then I went on to Amazon and then I went on to other sites like Etsy. And, and those were usually the big three. I would check them almost every day. Um, sometimes I'm not allowed to because I can tell you that if I go on, I'm going to find something I want to buy and it will not take me very long to find something I want to buy. And I can spend enormous amounts of money very quickly. So I would sort of chant today. I can only spend this much today. I can only spend this much. And if it was a particularly great piece, then I'd send the listing to a relative, like my sister, my mom and say, you know, I really like this for Christmas. Um, and, and, you know, it's amazing for years for every project I've ever done. Members of my family have bought me some of these items at various moments. And, um, and then my husband's really great. He just chooses not to ask if I've, how we've acquired things. Uh, but so I knew where to look and that made it easy, you know, and, and the same way that every time now I've gone back and I'm doing some projects with postcards again, like I did in my first book. And someone said to me, well, when you started this article, how did you get these? I said, oh, I said, I got those in like 15 minutes. I knew exactly where to look. I've, they're sellers I've worked with for decades. And so that made it much easier. The fan fiction was, was more of a stretch. Um, the fan fiction that forms two chapters in the book took me a little bit more out of my comfort zone. 
So I spent a lot of time reading about fan studies and, and learning the language and what to look for and all the various acronyms so that I could identify pieces and, and how they should be categorized. They, they were great. The, the theoretical literature and fandom is really interesting and worth, and worth looking at. But I had to decide in the end which kinds of sources I would use. Um, and I didn't go to the ones on fan websites. I left that, I think, for somebody else, in part because I didn't want to worry about the ethics of that. And at the end of the day, I sort of made a decision about halfway through the manuscript that my dis- I really just wanted to focus on what could my mother stumble across on the internet? Because I wanted to show that this, this vein of Putin memorabilia really was everywhere, like it was inescapable. So I used my mom as a common denominator, because trust me, my mother is not going to be reading fandom websites. But my mom might conceivably on Amazon be looking at something. So what could she encounter? as she just went about her normal digital life. And, and I, that's what was so astonishing to me that on the main Amazon website, for instance, if you buy groceries and you can throw in a movie for your kids and, and subscribe to popular mechanics, you could also buy um, a completely X-rated coloring book showing Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin engaged in sexual activities on the white house desk. You could do that. And I think that's what's so interesting, the, the way in which this has become so mainstream. And so I, I got really into that side of the digital side. And then I guess when it came to video games, I sat down and said, okay, we'll just do the same approach. Let's find what's there. Let's go to the app website. Let's write down all the apps, check all the ratings. Who are the designers? When it came time to look at the video games on Steam, um, I confess I don't have an account. So I tapped one of my kids and said, log mama in. <laughs> and I, and I, I apologize for this. If they're going to think your steam's really weird, if they're tracking your usage and, uh, and worked outwards. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm curious how you went about evaluating some of these sources, because a lot of them are either published anonymously or they're published under usernames, and you have no idea who actually produced them. Where I'm sure, like, if you go back to the postcards the early czarist period, there are some people who took pictures and you're like, oh, I know this is a picture from this mm-hmm. particular company. It's easier to trace, but this is so anonymous and so globalized. So how did you go about figuring out who these people were or what does that even matter really? I think it matters. The historian in me gets really upset about that. Um, the media scholars, the people who work on the internet are, are sometimes, they're aware of it, but they're more willing to live with the ambiguity. And um, so some of the internet scholars I read really look at this question about, you know, what happens with a meme and can we ever know what anyone thinks when they post it? And at the end of the day, you really can't. But I think sometimes you can make a good argument. And so on Amazon, occasionally people in the description boxes would give you something to give you a snippet of their political beliefs, but not always. Sometimes it was clear like they were just out for a buck. Um, You have better luck on places like Etsy because on Etsy, things are handcrafted. So the example I often use here are the hand-drawn Putin gift cards that I bought and that I gave everyone for Christmas one year. Because the woman who designs them, there's a tiny little profile picture of her and she's wearing one of the pussy hats. And I thought, okay, if you if that's this profile picture you choose of yourself, you're kind of seeing what your politics are. And then by, this, by the examples that are for sale, we get a sense of it too. And so I felt more confident that, yeah, I, I had pegged her politics correctly. The same with things like the garden gnome that you mentioned. The, man, the person who makes that, it's very playful in the listing, but it's also very clear their sort of political slant. There are a couple of other people on the print-on-demand sites. Um, some of the stickers I bought, for instance, were made by someone who, this is the name he uses, he calls himself the Putinator. And it's Putin the, Putin the Putin back in Putin. I mean, he has all these plays with Putin. Everything's about Putin. And his pictures of, is of him kind of as a cyborg Putin. Um, so it's someone who's clearly a Putin fan. And I think that that way I felt quite comfortable. Oh, yeah, this guy's a, a real Putin fan. Um, but other places, no, I, I didn't know. I still don't know. And I find it really frustrating. I did my best to track 
how many how many people bought things. If I could find out anything about the designers, I tried to put it in there. But I will admit I did not dig into their real identities. I think sometimes if someone is online with an with a pseudonym, then they've chosen that for a reason. And especially in a book, if you put that into a book that their real name is, you're not sure what kind of damage could be done. Ryan Milner, who works on the internet and memes and meme culture, um, talks about this in one of his books. He talks about the unintended consequences of becoming a meme, where an ordinary person's picture was then reworked and they lost complete control over it. And everywhere this man goes, he's recognized. Oh, you're the guy in the meme. And he never posted the picture in the first place. And it had sort of very negative effects on his um, life. And I was always thinking about that. So the woman who do the, the greeting cards, for instance, she has a first name. I assume that's probably her name, but I never made an effort to track her down in the actual phone book to see if it's legit. I thought, no, because if I put this in my book, I don't know who might read it. There's another place in the book that you can see me airing like that on the side of caution is I probably have the strangest acknowledgements anyone's ever read. No one has any last names. And that was because, again, I wasn't sure about how this book would be received. Not everyone is going to be pleased by the chapters that deal with more explicit materials. Um, Some people might be offended by what they see as the politics of the book. And so to make sure there was no blowback to anyone who encouraged me or read the manuscript or peer reviewed it or, or even my own children who are thanked at the end, no one is mentioned with their full name. And so I thought I, I will probably do the same thing for anyone who wrote the fan fiction, anyone who created a material object. I'm just going to take your online presence and see what I can get from it. But if I can't get any more than you've given me, I'm not digging through. I would have done that very differently, I think. If I was working on my earlier research on dead people, then I'm not as worried. I can dig into who created things in leadership cults in 1900 um, without worrying about the real world implications of that. You can't do that when you're working on materials that are created as you're writing. Since you brought up politics, I think that that is one of the more, I wouldn't say surprising, but like you pick up a book about Putin Kitsch and you're like, what is this going to be about? Right. Um, and you kind of see some of the things you expect to see. You see a lot of shirtless Putin. But I was struck by the fact that you had this kind of argument threaded throughout the chapters about how this is not only like this kitsch is not only kind of a, a satirical kind of culture. It's not only bringing this kind of satire that we're kind of used to now with the rise of comedy mm-hmm. news networks and yeah. things like that. But you're also making an argument about political engagement. And I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit more about that because. We are in a moment where we're really questioning how politics and the internet go together and whether or not they can create more democracy or whether they have an authoritarian effect. Or I'm just curious, some of your um, the arguments that you make in the book about the way that people interacting with Putin Kitsch can help us better understand the way that politics works in this digital era. I think that wound up being one of the most important things I say in the book and, um, and really fascinating. In fact, it's a subject I have not exhausted. Because uh, there's other parts of, of the story that I, I really just only touched the tip of the iceberg for. And what I find really fascinating and, and what really sparked this was as I began to work on Putin Kitsch and I would accumulate these things and I would show new acquisitions to my family, my husband would always just shake his head and go, I don't get it. I don't get it. Like, why would anyone? I don't get it. And it dawned on me that his reaction was very similar to what normal media scholars or media pundits on TV would have said. And so, you know, if you're watching CNN or or in our case, for instance, I'm watching PBS and they have um, the news hour on and every week there's Mark Shields and David Brooks offering a commentary on what is going on. And they are of a certain generation, as are so many of the other media experts who are on TV commenting on conventions or um, every time there's a debate, who are the experts who are on giving those opinions? They are all my age or older. Okay, and, and I'm 48. So everybody is sort of 50 and older. And we have a very different relationship with technology. Most of us, for instance, consider our phones phones. They're not entertainment devices. Um, I mean, I would not watch a movie on my phone. The screen isn't big enough for me to see everything. And so we, we interact very differently. And I was hearing these, these media experts constantly saying, oh, young people are so disengaged. They have no interest in things. And I don't know what we're going to do. Democracy is in peril. And it just didn't meld with what I was seeing. 
And I realized, no, democracy is not in peril. Democracy is just changing. And that younger people, as I watch my kids debate issues, they didn't even watch the TV. My kids are on their phone. And they're interacting in very different kinds of ways. And so it's a much more horizontal mode of, tr- of transmission. So we've often thought politics is candidate says something, people sort of support candidate, and then those followers then go out and network even further down the chain. It's, it's hierarchical. And instead, what you're seeing is, is, no, it's much more horizontal, where you have um, sharing of authority groups making decisions together and engaging in projects together and then sort of using social networking to get their project off the ground. That was really interesting. And I think that's what the Putin kitsch is showing you. The way in which you can make political statements using very untraditional methods. And it's almost as if many of the media, certainly experts on television, have no idea this is even happening. They are completely perplexed. I mean, every now and then you'll have a moment where it bubbles up. So, for instance, the um, the day of the press conference that um, Vladimir Putin had with Donald Trump in Helsinki that I end the book with. I end that day because Time Magazine releases a cover that blends their two images together. There was a video that got some um, bad press that showed them on a first date. And on the same day, I mean, this terrible press conference, which many experts said was a disaster for Trump, and he seemed to pander to Putin. The same day you had this man go down to the Wall Street um, statue of a bull, decorate it with adult toys and put a Putin mask on and sit on it and make the state. And people were sort of like, what is he doing? Well, that kind of protest was quite normal in what I've encountered, but most of the time isn't reported. And then we saw a wave of it after, you know, the my book manuscript had been submitted. You had things like Donald Trump going to Britain on a first state visit and farmers plowing interesting designs into their fields of male genitalia or the baby Trump balloon. And, and, and sort of these manifestations that were now getting attention were the way in which people have been using politics, especially young people, since 2006. And so what I see is some really interesting stuff, especially around craftivism. This is something I'm, I'm increasingly interested in. I only touch it very briefly in the book, but... Um, I have a little piece that's in a new volume on craftivism. And as I read the other 40-something articles, I'm astonished at how vibrant that movement is. The way in which you can use fiber, textile, traditional handicrafts to destabilize everything from a meeting, as simple as doing what they call KIP, that's knitting in public, which makes people really uncomfortable because they don't know what you're thinking or why you're doing it, to say nothing of what you might be knitting to yarn installations, to all kinds of, you know, displays using t-shirts and how these can pop up and, and they're never meant to be permanent, but they are really thought provoking. And so I'm seeing more and more of that now that I'm, I know what to look for. And it gives me a lot of hope for those things. I think that we're young people are like, why would I want to do politics the same way? Just as we now have a generation that seldom watch regular network television, why would they do politics the same way? I came to feel far more engaged. Um, and see them far more, well, they were a lot more interested in what I was doing. As I was writing this, I talked a lot about it. Every day when I was teaching, I'd be like, oh, today I was working on this. And can you believe what I found this weekend? And it was clear that the students I was teaching in my own university were very interested in politics. But they didn't always follow the same path I thought. Like they might not watch the debate from the night before, but they had read all kinds of posts the next day on Twitter. And, and so it forced me to really think about that. How are we going to engage? And so the theoretical literature, if people are looking for it, involves words like horizontal participation, um, DIY citizenship, so do-it-yourself citizenship, participatory culture. These are the sort of languages that are being used about it. And they all refer to things where people share authority in a horizontal fashion rather than a hierarchical and they encompass everything from youth activism to knitting projects for seniors where they're protesting prison conditions. And, and I think that that's going to be an interesting avenue to watch in the next sort of five to 10 years to see how people are going to, again, evolve, politically speaking. Well, we would be remiss if we don't go back to you know, your discussion of politics and sex and politics oh, yes. and male genitalia. <laughs> 
um, and kind of politics. I think you call it the pornographication. Is that right? Yes. Pornographication. Pornographication. Yes. Thank you. The pornographication of politics. Yes. And I mean, I do confess, I have part of a chapter where I call it Putin's magic penis. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was really interested in that, though, because um, my husband, when he was a grad student, actually taught some classes about like the Roman period mm-hmm. and he's learned Latin. And like when you translate Latin, you have like explicit Oh, yeah. Things that they would like carve on the sure side they of did. stuff. So like this kind of process seems extremely old, which yes. you note in the book, but it's also relatively, it feels new in some ways. So I'm, I'm wondering yeah. if you could talk about that. I think what's maybe n- a little bit new about it is the degree of explicitness. So some of the fetishes that are referenced, you have to do a lot of research to understand some of the fetishes or to know what they are, what what the codes, the visual codes that you see actually mean. Um, but you're right. It's a much older process. And, and this comes up all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm often asked, well, aren't these materials homophobic? And I'm like, actually, they're kind of not. I think the people who, who write these are actually not homophobic at all. They tend to be supporters of LGTB, LGBTQ rights. But what they think instead is they're dealing with politicians who are homophobic. So sort of what's the worst thing you can do to them? is paint them as hypocrites and do so using their own um, bugaboos. And and you're right, I take this back to the sort of criticisms you see from the French Revolution. The Russian Revolution has similar materials. If you have rulers who are behaving in a way that's considered unacceptable, they become targeted through their sexuality. The materials are not really meant to arouse. Um, I think I make that point quite strongly in the last chapter where I do end by, by actually looking is there any Putin porn on Pornhub? And the answer is no. You know, and there's there's very little actual, I was expecting all kinds. I thought tons of people wearing Putin masks or something like that. And there isn't any. And at the end of the day, I sort of pondered, why not? And it was because Putin's really not sexy. People are not using his image because they go, oh, he's the ideal man and he's a heartthrob. They're using his sexualized image as a critique. The sex is, is a criticism. So if it's, I think if it's that frame of pornography that we've seen, and then what you do is depending on the statement you want to make, you pick the worst that you can imagine and you have people do that. And, and it's easy, especially once you factor in that so much of this is about masculinity. If you want to undermine someone's masculinity, you do so arguing that they're engaged in behavior that most people would view deviant or their supporters would view as deviant. In the case of the fan fiction, when you have moments where Putin is always the alpha male in this, with one exception, there's only one story where he is not the alpha male, um, he stands in and almost emasculates Donald Trump in these narratives. And that's meant to really be a critique and to upset potentially right-wing uh, readers who, of course, could be evangelical Christians who would be very upset by the descriptions of, of some of the scenes in these stories. And so I think the sex is really weaponized. And what they're tapping into is overall this sort of growing sexualization of our culture um, that's that's really there. I mean, now I'm going to sound like my mother, aren't I? Uh, where you critique, you know, what people are wearing and how much sex is on TV. But there is a sort of overlap. You're, you do see references from the world of, of pornography creeping more into mainstream culture. And once you can see them or once you recognize a performer who's now doing a role in a more mainstream television program, you know the code is what I would be how, to, how I would phrase that. And the Putin materials fit that. So you have t-shirts that reference certain things. It doesn't deliberately say, oh, this is exactly what's happening. But you're like, oh, the positioning of those bodies indicates this. And that's what they're getting at. Um, and, I, and depending on your level of familiarity with the pornographic tropes, you can miss it entirely. Um, in fact, I hope most people do. I think that Sometimes you see things and once you see it, you can't unlearn it. But uh, at the same time, I think that it's a really interesting phenomenon. And it's one that a lot of Americans are really grappling with. There's, there is a literature on pornographication. Brian McNair, who, who coined the term, is quite positive about porn in general. Sort of says, well, it is there. It's not going away. Sort of deal with it. But then there are other people who write on this question who view it as really a problem. And that's something that does need to be addressed. And, uh, and I'm mean, jury's still out on this. This is something American political scientists are going to have to be debating in the next couple of decades. 
I'm curious because as I was reading it, I too was wondering, like, is this homophobic or is it Mm -hmm. not homophobic? And I guess for me, the kind of, I feel I come out with a different sense of like it feeling more homophobic Mm -hmm. just because it's still used as a insult. Yes. Right. So like just the basic fact that calling someone gay remains like the cardinal sin insult may not be as homophobic as calling somebody like really terrible slurs or, you know, encouraging violence, but it feels like both that and the masculinity that is just kind of like coursing through it for me as like a feminist, as like a woman feels very troubling because it still feels like that space as we've already talked about is being constructed in a way that's reinforcing a lot of narratives rather than challenging them. It is. um, But I think because my focus was on Putin, some elements of especially the fan fiction, I don't spend as much time on them. So some parts of the sort of subtext of various stories. So there's other things in there. There's one story, for instance, um, to be really explicit, where, where Putin does figure in the actual story. Um, but it opens instead with a scene where there's an incestuous in- interlude between Donald Trump and his daughter, Ivanka. And, and so there, you know, sort of why include that? And, and so there are these other elements too. And so when I read, and the other thing is the astonishing level of detail. The fact that whoever is writing them is able to go into an enormous amount of detail, almost as if they would probably be writing gay erotica for a different genre. Just take the politics out, change the names to Matt and Dave, and tone down the sort of um, nasty dialogue a little bit, and you could be writing erotica. It's, it's They're that comfortable with the terminology. And so it's not a constant... Um, denigration that way. Moreover, most of the time, the language being used about the characters themselves within the stories, they don't call each other names. They don't put each other down for this, but they just try to hide it. So I don't see it as as sort of like the equivalent of like gonzo porn, which is deliberately degrading. And and they put people in, in situations that are meant to be really awful. This is more just sort of what would happen if. And, and, and I also think it's really interesting because the response to some of the early pieces before this became an issue and people started to really look at it, the responses from LGD, LGBTQ, that is such a hard acronym to say quickly, <laughs> um, audiences were positive for the first year. They thought this was funny. And I mean, you have comedians like Randy Rainbow who plays with this idea all the time and who makes no um, attempt to hide his own sexuality. And he's clearly not uncomfortable about making these kinds of jokes. And even some of my gay friends, I mean, gay friends who read the manuscript, nobody came back and said, this is all totally homophobic. With that said, I think that's why I went back over and over again in the book and said, like, look, this kind of critique's been around for hundreds of years. And as you say, with your husband's research, millennia, Mm -hmm. because I think we have to take that perspective. It's too easy to just come in and go, oh, that's just somebody being homophobic. I think it points to the homophobia in U.S. politics, but from a perspective that says, look, Look how hypocritical some of these people are. And I'm going to call them out on it by deliberately exposing them as the worst thing they could be. Um, but, you know, jury's still out on this. And, and there will be different reactions. There will be people who disagree with me. And, and I mean, there will be people who, ev- who read every one of these stories that you can get. The Trump-Putin slash will offend everybody at some point. Um, but they have to make up their own mind. I think the tra- you have to really read it really closely. I think that's a great point, though, that because like Putin and Trump have both styled themselves in some ways as like a very anti-gay figure, yes. that it becomes the best way yes. to criticize them. Well, and you wind up with guest appearances. So as they put sort of like a guest show, you know, person arrives in a, as a guest star on a, on a TV show. And you'll have these moments where like Mike Pence arrives. Well, Mike Pence's political views are pretty obvious on these questions. And so in those instances, they always turn Mike Pence into a character who's involved in gay sex. Because again, it's a great critique. Or if they invite um, Steve Bannon, similar things are going on. Occasionally in the Russian context, they'll also reference the the anti-gay laws that have been passed by Putin. And that he's engaged in certain behaviors. If he gets caught, they'll they'll remove him from office. And so there's an underlying awareness in the text that these are political figures who've done their, their very best to restrict the rights of those communities in their respective countries. And, and it's very in your face. They're very open about it. The same way they openly mock certain symbols of state as if to say 
these people are denigrating the values of their societies, the things that they supposedly embrace, they're actually making a mockery of that. Well, one of the last questions that I had is that I wanted to know if you have a favorite piece of Putin catch, because we've done the highbrow thing. Like there is a lot that we can get through in this book. I find it incredibly fascinating, but I am also just personally dying to understand (laughs) or like to know, uh, do you have like a favorite piece? I do. Um, I have favorite pieces and depending on when I talk about this, where I might be. So some things, for instance, I couldn't have brought today because I don't want to cross an international border with them. And driving's not so bad, but if you're if you're in an airplane and they open your suitcase, I really don't want to explain why I have particular things because you can get into trouble. Um, so it's very easy to always bring my Putin bathing suit, and it's good for a laugh. But it's not my favorite piece. Um, the Putin garden gnome means a lot to me. I wanted that gnome so badly, and I looked at it for months, and I don't even know how many times I would have mentioned it in class. How much I loved this garden gnome, and I was desperate for it, but it was too expensive. Um, How much did it cost? Just under a hundred dollars. Wow. And it was something that I just couldn't justify, you know, you getting close to Christmas. It's like, do I buy Christmas gifts for my children or a Putin garden gnome? And in the end, someone gifted it to me. Someone who I've actually had a lot of Putin kitsch given to me over the years by students who I've learned. I now no longer ever say, oh my God, I'd really love this because somehow somebody thinks that that should be they're going to give it to me. So I don't want to upset them and, and make them feel that they should do that. But over the years, people have given me things. And so a student I'd known for very many years and who I, I helped out in many cases, his mother in the end decided that the two of them would give me that. And um, he was graduating. And I confess, I squealed like a little child on Christmas morning when I opened it. And um, yeah, I had to laugh too, because my husband's reaction is, that's not going on our nightstand, is it? And I said, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah, we'll see. Um, But no, I love that. But I think actually my favorite piece is something that doesn't exist. And I talk about that in the digital chapter. And all I have is a fridge magnet over showing what it could have been had they actually made the toys. And it was the Putin action figure. Um, This man designed, well, he came up with prototypes in sort of just digital design form. I don't think he ever actually made a physical prototype. But there were sort of two dozen almost possible action figures of this 21st century bastard series. And I wanted the one that was called Action Vlad, where, of course, he has no shirt on. And it comes with his usual machine gun and a PP tape, which I always loved to. And, and the, bo- the design on the fake packaging would have been so great because it says comes with adjustable limbs and morals. And I mean, it was just so perfect. There were others in the line. I mean, there's a Donald Trump in it. He's sitting on a toilet. Um, Theresa May, Nigel Farage. It was very much about Brexit and every negative political leader, because you could also get a Kellyanne Conway, a Sean um, Spicer. And and I really wish if they had made that series, if it ever come to life, I would have given you know my left arm to own one of these. Um, but all I have is the fridge magnet. And I really like, I can't even get a bigger version so that the image is clear. That's the piece that, if it existed, I think would be the ultimate image. And so, yeah, that's kind of my favorite. Yeah. Um, Adjustable limbs and morals. I mean, the brilliance of that line alone, right? So perfect. Yeah. I have to say that the coloring books were the things that kind of tickled me the most as I was reading this. I was like, I kind of now need to go buy. Oh, and some of them are awful. (laughs) The quality is so bad. I mean, their lines are disappearing. And and I mean, the, some of the world leader ones, they don't even, they're like, who is this? Because <laughs> they all look the same. Uh, but at the same time, the whole phenomenon. And, and I love what you could do with them. Because some of the video apps, which are kind of like coloring books, right? But you're only given certain options. You can put this color, this color, or this color on. The coloring book, you could do whatever you wanted to these world leaders. Like imagine the possibilities if you actually sat and colored them, which I confess I have not done. Um, but I'm always tempted and think like, what would I do? Like what color hair would I give Putin? And would, would I make him a different like flesh color? Would I make him paisley or yeah. What would I do with that? Would I put interesting tattoos on his forehead or something? Um, because the, the possibilities are endless. And then after you've colored them, you're free to display them. Right. I mean, you could conceivably rip them out of the book, and or in my case, I could actually put them up on my office door 
I use a piece of Putin kitsch somehow in my office hours sheet every semester and have for the last three years. I change it every semester. Usually it's an image that's not in the book or sometimes I have to tone it down because there's some I can't use. Um, there was one that referenced BDSM and where Putin is, is walking Trump and he's in a dog collar and Putin's dressed in a nice long leather coat. And I almost used that and thought, no, somebody's going to say something at the university. So I tone it down a little bit, but I, I love incorporating this. And so I make that statement every day with a, a piece of Putin kitsch. If you want to see what I'm going to be in to meet with me, you've got to see this. But I could conceivably decorate my entire door with things from a Putin coloring book. Uh, and I think that would be really cool. That could be my own installation. Yeah, that really could. <laughs> So like the question then that we have to kind of end with is where are you going from here? Right. So is Putin now your thing? Do you feel like you have a lot more to say about him in the United States? Because you're a Russianist by training. I know. Right? And it feels weird. I spent, I'm worse. I'm a Russianist and I'm a historian. Yeah. I spent an entire year when I was working on this book. I didn't read a single history book. Wow. And I realized it afterwards, once I completed the manuscript, I went back and I read a book for a modern Europe class. And I was like, oh, hello, old friend. All of the norms, like how the book was laid out, everything. I was like, this is from here. Um, Because I spent a year where all I read was porn studies, comm studies, fan studies, political science. I even read some linguistics, which I confess gave me a struggle. The linguistics of emoticons was a stretch for me. Um, But I read all of these other disciplines and I feel competent to co- to comment on them in some ways but at the same time i i was always looking through the eyes of the historian so i had a longer perspective for everything and then again the eyes of the russianist see it differently than the eyes of the americanist um so i think that that was interesting i had believed i was done but there are some things i didn't do in the book and so i shied away for instance i focused on the sort of explicit sexuality a little bit i shied away from the vein of toilet humor which is there and which has, again, there is toilet humor going back to, I thought I might write an article about this in the future at some point. If you look at, for instance, postcards from the Russo-Japanese War or the war, First World War, there's a ton of toilet humor. Kaiser Wilhelm II on, on um, potties or, or in the Russo-Japanese War context, lots of visual imagery about farting and things like that. And, and sort of what is up with that? And, and you can even take it back. There, there are images as early as the 1830s in British politics. Where, because there's a crisis in the monarchy, the monarchs are being criticized using these bodily functions. And so we're seeing that too. Um, in my case, I mean, I confess, what, three weeks ago, I had lunch with a friend and she had brought me, because she knew I'd want it, a nice roll of Putin toilet paper from the Ukraine, where he has a, a color picture of Putin. And he, it says hui on the bottom, which of course is not a nice word in Russian. And, um, and she said that the old lady who sold her her rolls was delighted that she wanted them. So, you know, when you can get Putin toilet paper or last week in San Francisco, I picked up a, a Trump toilet brush where his hair is the bristles. And that one, I actually, that was interesting at customs back in Canada when they said, what do you have to declare? I was like, well, I have this, 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 and a Trump toilet brush. The um, customs official just gave me a little smile and didn't ask for anything more, but um, I think that that's something interesting too. The way in which bodily functions are used to critique political leaders. So I could see, you know, sort of maybe a year from now when I have a little bit more time, going and looking at that more deeply. Oh, there is also um, Putin toilet water that you missed after people have done certain things in the toilet, and they make fun of Putin with his name. They turn it P O O. And the whole bottle is a really interesting play on, on his name in that context. And so, so I think that there's a paper there. Am I going to do it right away? No. Um, I have another book that's been under contract for a while that I should have been writing instead of writing about Putin. And I'm really hoping my publishers don't cancel my contract because there is literally no way I'm making my 2020 deadline. Um, but I'm going to go back and, and work in the late sort of 1890s to 1920s, 1930s period again. Um, I'm not going to say never say never because I'll I'll admit, like I said, if I'm bored, I should never be allowed to go on a print-on-demand service website. I am always tempted. This year, I came close to buying the Putin wrapping paper for everyone's gifts. Um, My sister actually texted me and said, please don't ever wrap my gift in that. Um, And so I'm always tempted. And I could see doing an update of this, depending on what happens. I mean, let's be honest. 
this entire scenario could change quite dramatically if the impeachment hearings play out in a number of different ways. I do think that Putin is going to be very, still very visible on the world stage through 2024. So, you know, I'm quietly watching, but at the same time, I don't feel the need to be every day in it anymore. And, and I think maybe that's healthy um, because this was a very intense process. I wrote this book in eight months which is incredibly fast, if anyone knows anything about academic publishing. Shocking. It um, it took over my entire life. And even there are moments, like I'll reference it again, that, that day when I went to see if Putin has any, well, if there are any Putin-related videos on Pornhub. And there are, but it's like him playing Blueberry Hill or, you know, he's walking in the rain. It has nothing to do with explicit sexuality. Um, but one of my sons came out of his room and sort of said, what are you doing? And I said, I was very honest. I said, I'm looking for this on, on Pornhub. And he's like, well, okay. And he rotated to go back in his room. And I heard him say to his friends who's gaming online, guess what my mom is. And I had to shout and say, we don't tell people what mom actually does. <laughs> and it would be nice to be able to go places and have, you know, the cut. If you're taking a scholarly book with you to read it while you're waiting, not have people stare at you. And I spent a year reading the kinds of titles that people were like saying to my kids, dude, what does your mom do? Like, what is this? Uh, no one ever says that, you know, when you're working on the World War One era. Yeah, on Zara's postcards. <laughs> there you go. It's, it's such a nice, safe topic. And there's no pressing deadline. You don't have to worry that the politics will change. And uh, yeah, but but I could still see me coming back. I don't know if I can walk away entirely. Maybe I'm just taking a rest. That sounds like a good answer. Yes. <laughs> Well, Allison, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a really interesting conversation. It was such a fun read. It's such an interesting and thought-provoking book. I hope everybody who listens to this will feel inspired to go out because there are pictures that you... Oh, the press was fantastic. Yeah. They, ga- they gave me, I think it's 45 images. There are a lot in they there. They gave me a lot and they didn't balk from day one because normally that's problematic. Mm-hmm. And um, and then the things that I reference sometimes even in this, art, in this interview um, that aren't in the book, I often post them on Instagram because the book has an Instagram. Oh, what is its name? At Putin Kitsch in America. Uh, at Instagram? Okay. At Instagram. And so I often about once a week put something up that is an image that didn't make the book. Excellent. Uh, I just think, you know, because I, I still, if I'm going to buy them, I have to share them some way. Otherwise, I can't justify spending any more <laughs> yeah. money. And that would be really hard. Yeah. Well, excellent. So all of our listeners go check it out on Instagram. Uh, check out the book. Thank you so much again, Allison, for the interview. And thank you so much to everybody out there for listening. Thank you for having me. 